This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. February 29th, earlier this year, was an agreement signed between the United States and the Taliban. First of all, I think it's really important that people understand, and you do, that it is not a peace agreement. It is a withdrawal agreement for the U.S. The logic of the case was that if we put a firm withdrawal table, timetable on the in the agreement, the Taliban would agree to direct negotiations with the Afghan state and that that was the only way we were going to get to nego- such negotiations, which are the essential way of ending the war. That has not fully worked. The negotiation says, you know, we'll leave a certain period of time if certain conditions are met, but it doesn't spell out those conditions, correct? Well, the agreement itself doesn't even say anything about the conditions. People have testified, like Ambassador Khalilzad have testified, that they are not meeting all the conditions, and we have accelerated the withdrawal program. The Taliban believes they're winning. Right now, with the change of our administration, I expect the fighting to get much worse because I believe the Taliban will likely do everything they can to sort of box in the Biden administration to give them as little room for maneuver and choice as possible. And I think the Biden administration is going to have to think about that a little faster than they're probably going to want to. Ronald Newman was a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, and he served as the U.S. ambassador to Algeria, Bahrain, and Afghanistan. During his career, Ambassador Newman served in dozens of countries and in senior positions at the State Department in Washington, most of them related to the Middle East and South Asia. I just caught up with the ambassador to talk about Afghanistan and its future. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ambassador Newman, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. It's a treat for me to be here. Thank you, Michael. Ambassador, this episode is part of a series of episodes that we're doing between the election and the inauguration on the key national security issues facing the country. We started a few weeks ago with H.R. McMaster, who gave us an overview of all the issues, and now we're taking a deep dive on each of them. And today we are very lucky to have you with us to talk about Afghanistan, its past, its future, what U.S. policy should be, the whole gamut on Afghanistan. But before we do that, what I'd love to do is just give my listeners a a sense of who you are to get to know you a little bit. So if we could spend a little bit of time talking about your career as a diplomat, that would be terrific. And maybe the first question is, how did you end up in the Foreign Service? Um, I'm sure your father had little role in that. Well, my father, when I was growing up, was actually a university professor. Later on, he became a very odd animal. He was a political appointee ambassador who served uh, four presidents, three posts, and two parties. Uh, But when I was growing up, we had various strange foreigners and others coming through the house when he was a university professor. And uh, somehow that got me interested, and I decided very young that I wanted to go in the Foreign Service. I hadn't had a particular focus. And then my father became ambassador to Afghanistan, which makes us one of only three father-sons to have run the same embassy in our diplomatic history. So I know that John Adams and John Quincy Adams were one. What was the other one? Well, I've discovered there was a family named Francis, and I know absolutely nothing about them except that father and son were both minister to the court of Austro-Hungary. And it's an almost unknown part. And someday I got to go do some more research myself. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. I think what it proves is, you know, you it has no political significance. You can do it about once every hundred years. <laughs> in any event, uh, I first went to Afghanistan in 1967. When my father was ambassador, I had a three and a half month break between graduate school and needing to report for the U.S. Army, where I'd gotten uh, carried away and volunteered. And so my wife and I went to Afghanistan, which was peaceful in those days, traveled all over the country saw parts of Afghanistan that uh, foreigners are not likely to see for a long time, I think. Uh, I mean, we were out everywhere by jeep, by horse, uh, even by a yak up into the Pamirs. What was it like in those days? Uh, Primitive but peaceful. I went with a hunting party where we went all the way up to the northeast, uh, where there's this funny little panhandle that goes out along what was then the Soviet border. And... uh, we had, you know, a group of foreigners and, uh, well, we had hunting rifles, but they were packed away and nobody bothered us. We traveled to the absolute end of the road by Jeep and then by horse along the Amudara and then by Yak up into the Pamirs in that pan, that high plateaus uh, in that panhandle. The base camped about 13,000 feet. And, uh, you know, I, Basically, we travel. I traveled all over the country at that point. Sometimes with my wife, and sometimes alone. It was uh, was peaceful. So, Ron, you joined the army. How long were you in the army before 
the Foreign Service? Uh, almost three years. I had uh, I passed the Foreign Service test before I got carried away. And I got a letter when I was in Vietnam asking if I could join, put in my paperwork. They lost it. I put in my paperwork a second time and uh, <laughs> finished my Vietnam tour. It was on my 30-day leave when I got the notice that my release was approved. And two weeks later, I was in Washington joining the Foreign Service. So give us, uh, give us a sense, Ambassador, of your career path in the Foreign Service. What did that look like? It has been essentially a path that you can see on a fairly small map of the Middle East and South Asia. I had one excursion tour in, in West Africa and Senegal, but after that I served in my overseas tours in in uh, Iran, in Yemen, in uh, Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, in uh, then Algeria as ambassador, then Bahrain as ambassador, then Iraq uh, after the invasion for, uh, for about a year and a half and then uh, Afghanistan. And how long were you in Afghanistan? A little less than two years. Now, when I wrote a memoir, I called it Three Embassies, Four Wars. I think that's really all you need to know for my short biography. Yeah. So it, 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 I, I didn't originally have this question written down, but I'm interested in your sense of how the Foreign Service has changed from when you started, when you began your career, and then when you ended it. What were the kind of big differences? Wow. I suppose in my part of the world, one difference is it's not quite as much fun. More people seem to be shooting at each other. Yeah. Uh, aside from that, I think, I mean, you could have a very long answer to this question. One big difference that bothers me is that we're not getting out as much. Mm. And there are a lot of reasons. There are pressures that keep people at their computer. But overall, it is the, the fears of security and also the fears of having your career blown up if you survive a security incident. And there's a big problem here. One of the problems, I think, is with this so-called accountability review board, which is 25-year-old mm. legislation. My day job, actually, at the American Academy of Diplomacy, we are working on a project to get Congress to change that law. And, and it's really important to get out, right? Because that's how you end up knowing the country and knowing the people. and The ultimate job of the Foreign Service is to persuade foreigners to do things that we want them to do. And you only do that well if you understand where they're coming from and what their pressures are. You don't have to, you don't have to sympathize or agree with them. You have to understand them, though, so that you know how to present your own arguments, your own case. And so you can also tell Washington occasionally that an idea sounds bright, but it's not going to work. Yeah. You know, what you're describing in terms of the difference you saw, I saw a similar difference when I was sitting at CIA. So as a very young analyst in 1980, I was reading these incredibly rich deep pictures of the countries that I was following that were written by State Department officers on the ground. And by the time I left the agency in 2013, those kind of cables from the State Department were few and far between. That's sad because that's that's the world that I grew up in, certainly, and that I still believe in. And I frankly, an ambassador who wants that kind of reporting can get it from his team, but he has to give them the backup, the support, the top cover to get out and to see multiple contacts or she. So one more career question, and you hinted at it. So you're still involved today. You're running this organization called the American Academy of Diplomacy. What is that and what is its mission? 
It's a very small organization of former senior diplomats, mostly foreign service, but not we all. We have some non-career appointees, uh, some people with backgrounds in uh, intelligence, USAID. Um, but it's basically people who have worked at senior levels trying to get foreigners to do what we want as a matter of policy. And its mission is twofold. One is explaining uh, for what diplomacy is to Americans. We have two podcasts that I commend to people who might be interested. One called American Diplomat. It's a lot of life stories. The other called The General and the Ambassador that focuses on how uh, ambassadors and senior commanders have worked together. There's an awful lot in that area that people don't know. Uh, and our, our other area is pushing things at the department and at Congress that we think would improve the quality of our diplomacy. Great. Okay. So let's, let's Ambassador, let's jump to Afghanistan today, and maybe we could start by reviewing where we are. So February 29th, earlier this year, there was an agreement signed between the United States and the Taliban. What did in that agreement, what did we agree to and what did the Taliban agree to? Great starting place because it's a very unbalanced agreement in a sense. It is, first of all, I think it's really important that people understand, and you do, that it is not a peace agreement. It is a withdrawal agreement for the U.S. And we committed to a very specific withdrawal calendar, part of which was to be very quick and then the rest of which was to come about by May of next year. The logic of the case was that if we put a firm withdrawal table timetable on the uh, in the agreement, the Taliban would agree to direct negotiations with the Afghan state and that that was the only way we were going to get two nego such negotiations, which are the essential way of ending the war. That has not fully worked. One of the uh, one of the points in the agreement, well, maybe I should say, there are some there are a couple of things the Taliban have adhered to. They have by and large not attacked the foreigners, us and our NATO allies. They have mostly adhered to not attacking cities. They have not attacked so much in Kabul, but they are not really adhering to that. They've had major attacks on some other cities. There was an expectation, which is not in the agreement itself, it's not in the, any public text, that there would be a lowering of violence. The Taliban has gone in the other direction. They have picked up the pace. There was an American, the America gave up a point that we had had as a central point all the way from the attack against us in 9-11 up until this agreement where we had insisted that the Taliban had to break ties with Al-Qaeda, we gave up that and we modified it so that it's an agreement that there won't be any extremist violence against us or our allies from Afghanistan. It's a very vague, wishy-washy kind of commitment. I guess it means that Taliban Al-Qaeda can have their R&R facilities in Afghanistan, but not their planning headquarters. In any event, the Taliban have not given up ties with, uh, with Al-Qaeda. That's been documented by the UN. So it, you have had the start of negotiations, 
as agreed in the document, although the Taliban do not recognize the Afghan government. And so the negotiations are with a mixed group of political leaders. However, the negotiations have started only in form. Taliban have put forward new conditions to start, and the argument since then has been about their starting conditions. So you as yet do not have any actual peace negotiations going on, although we are ahead of schedule on our trip withdrawal. And the the negotiation says, you know, we'll leave a certain period of time if certain conditions are met, but it doesn't spell out those conditions, correct? Well, the agreement itself doesn't even say anything about the conditions. Now, at the beginning, when it was signed, former Secretary of Defense Esper, Secretary Pompeo, were very outspoken about how this was conditions-based. Um, I don't know that anybody believes that anymore. We don't have much, we didn't have much credibility on the idea of conditions based all the way back in the Obama administration when we talked about it, didn't do it with our withdrawal from our big surge. And now uh, the Taliban have continued to ratchet up violence. Can, People have testified, like Ambassador Khalilzad have testified in public, that they are not meeting all the conditions, and we have accelerated the withdrawal program. So whether whether conditions means anything to anybody is not clear. So, Mr. Ambassador, what's your kind of take on this negotiation, this agreement? What's your assessment of it as a diplomat? Their logic of starting on this basis is not necessarily bad. But when you look at this agreement and when you look at similar wars elsewhere, you get a really to a peace only when both sides believe they cannot win on the battlefield and they have to settle down and, and actually make an agreement. I don't think that condition yet applies. The Taliban believes they're winning. So the first thing you need to understand about this kind of negotiation is that it is not an alternative to violence. It's a parallel track. The fighting is where you create the leverage to push the other side. And so I expect the fighting will go up and down. Right now, with the change of our administration, I expect the fighting to get much worse because I believe the Taliban will likely do everything they can to sort of box in the uh, Biden administration to give them as little room for maneuver and choice as possible. And I think the Biden administration is going to have to think about that uh, a little faster than they're probably going to want to. So if the Taliban's mindset is that they're winning, what's the mindset of the Afghan government, our allies in this whole thing? The Afghan government has said that it wants a peace which preserves human rights, particularly women's rights, and which preserves as much of the constitutional structure of Afghanistan as possible, including elections. Taliban uh, are not interested in any of that at present. They want the Islamic Emirate back. Uh, The positions right now are frankly incompatible, but uh, lots of peace agreements have started with incompatible positions. So one last question, Ambassador, before we get to sort of what we do about all this. We talk all the time about the U.S. troop presence there, but not many people talk about the financial support that the U.S. government provides to the Afghan government. Really two questions about that. How important is that money 
to the Afghans? And was that part of the discussion at all between between the United States and the Taliban that led to the agreement? It was not to my knowledge. Remember, I was not in those talks and I'm not in the government right. anymore. But um, it, there were certainly, to the best of my knowledge, no specific figures. On the other hand, the Taliban have been clear <clears throat> that they would like America to remain involved. They would they understand that if they do come to power, they're going to have a busted country and we're the only ones with the resources to really help them. So there have been sort of marginal discussions and understanding. As far as the current situation goes, our, uh, our payment and the payment of other allies, remember we've got uh, you know all of the NATO countries right. and some others as well, helping to pay for the Afghan army. That level of payment, that really is key to maintaining the size of the army that is necessary to fight this insurgency in a very poor country. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Ambassador Ron Newman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. So, Mr. Ambassador, looking forward, and you, you hinted at this a little bit, where do you think we'll be on January 20th? What will Joe Biden inherit in Afghanistan? He will inherit an ongoing war that is not going very well. Right now, militarily, the basic situation is that the Afghan forces, with our support, are standing on the defensive, pushing back when they're hit hard. The Taliban are cautiously on the offensive, pulling back a little when they meet too much resistance. That means the strategic initiative on the battlefield right now is with the Taliban. And we have undermined Afghan confidence by this extra pullout of troops that President Trump just did. Uh, so we're in a shaky position. At the same time, Taliban has not broken with al-Qaeda. And you know, our most fundamental national interest in Afghanistan is not to have it again become the victory of al-Qaeda and terrorist forces. And that is easier to prevent than it is to have a victory strategy. So I think when Biden comes in, he's going to find that violence is up. He will have an enormous, as you know, enormous number of other issues he needs to right. work on. Afghanistan right. is not going to be the right. first thing on his mind, but the Taliban will be trying to run the situation before he can catch up with it. And, you know, if this was a pool game, they're trying to run the table before he gets to break. So, uh, I think the the first decision that President Biden will have to, to make is whether he can make clear that he's not going to be run out of the game before he has time to think about it. I don't think anybody can reasonably expect that he's going to come in with his mind totally made up to every piece of a strategy. But I think he has a tremendous need to say something about no further 
troop withdrawals and no lessening of support until he has time for his own review. He, he needs to stabilize both the military situation, he needs to stabilize the political situation in Kabul by making it clear that he's not going to be run off until at least he has time to think about it, to consult with his allies, which we've been pretty lax about, uh, lax, lackadaisical about, and he needs uh, to then make clear to everybody what his policy is. So in putting together a strategy, and you know this as well as as well as anyone, uh, the first thing you need to do is be able to articulate what your national interests are in a particular place or issue. And you you mentioned one of them, which is counterterrorism. But are there others when you look at Afghanistan? Are there other strategic interests for the United States here? Or is it just CT? No, I think... I think there are other interests. Um, I don't. Then you have to get into a, a sort of complex discussion: is how much are these worth? How much money? How much blood? But first of all, you have regional stability. If Afghanistan collapses, I don't think you have a Taliban quick victory. You have a descent into civil war again, in which you will find all of the outside powers drawn in and all of the local terrorist and resistance organizations, whether it's Uzbekistan or Chinese uh, or Tajik, with bases in Afghanistan. So you you have a potential for sort of rippling insecurity coming out of Afghanistan. I don't know how much, you know, at some point that's going to begin to touch things you really don't want to be messing with, although it, you could make an argument that maybe we don't care about anything. So you've got instability. You have a long-term commitment the United States has made to the people of Afghanistan, to Afghan women, to the constitutional process. Now, again, I think there's a real question, okay, what is that worth? It's not worth everything. But if you are going to get involved in the future anywhere and make similar commitments, then the question of whether your commitments are meaningful is is also a national interest. It isn't the be-all and end-all. It isn't that you, you have to always put good money after bad if things don't work, but it is an interest. Ron, you mentioned the regional instability, and when you were talking about that, one of the things that popped into my mind was, was Pakistan. For years, the flow of extremism went from Pakistan into Afghanistan. In the situation that you were describing when you were talking about regional instability, I was thinking about the flow of extremists going the other direction now and what that could potentially mean for Pakistani stability, which we should care about very much because it is a nuclear armed state. How do you think about that? I think it's a serious problem. I'm not sure whether the Pakistanis agree you do have, for instance, the so-called the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban, Tariqe Taliban Pakistani, which is at war with the Pakistani state, and they are now based in Afghanistan. Um, you have the Islamic State, which is also not a friend to Pakistan, based there. So a real collapse, I think, does have the potential to make things in Pakistan worse. It's not clear whether the Pakistanis fully agree with that. They don't seem to be supporting a Taliban victory. They seem to be content with um, a difficult situation. I don't know whether the Pakistanis 
believe they have the power to actually make an agreement. They certainly have a lot of power to keep things from happening. They have enormous power as a spoiler. But whether they think they have an option of a stable situation with the government they would consider friendly, that I don't, I don't know. And then one more question on interests. You know, obviously we're shifting now to back towards big power competition, peer-to-peer competition with China and Russia. Does Afghanistan play any role in that competition? Yes. Uh, first of all, it has threat uh, potential for both Pakistan, uh, for both China and Russia. Uh, and I think both know it. I don't think that's a threat potential that we have any ability to exploit, uh, but it's there. Secondly, as Russia plays the, the new great game and wants to be a large power, it has been using the Russia, the Afghan situation to uh, sort of expand its prestige by hosting conferences. I don't think Russia has much ability to make a peace in Afghanistan. It has some ability to be a spoiler. Where are you on this debate about whether the Taliban is serious when it says it will not allow extremist organizations to use Afghanistan as a launching point for attacks? Do they mean it when they say that? And if they do mean it, will they be able to deliver on it? Where are you on that question? Well, I don't believe it. It might be true. You know, the evidence is limited. But I think you have to ask, first of all, if if the Taliban is really serious about that, why would it not be willing to even say in an agreement that it will break with al-Qaeda? I right. find that you know, Taliban only go with this very vague language that it can walk around. Secondly, Al-Qaeda has a very tight link up with the Haqqani movement. The Haqqani movement is part of the Taliban. So Taliban has some real problems. One of the things you saw, uh, you may remember, Michael, when the uh, contents of Osama bin Laden's computers were being made uh, declassified to some extent. One of the things in there, at one point, there was a message from Osama bin Laden to somebody saying that he was nervous about the Taliban's position uh, toward al-Qaeda, but go check with the Haqqani movement because we've got good friends there and they'll give us a good read, um, which is an interesting, I mean, that's several years old now, but that's an interesting illustration of how tight the Al-Qaeda and Haqqani movement relationship was, and as far as I know, still is. So, Mr. Ambassador, what do you see as the strategic options going forward? And which one would you recommend to a President Biden? Okay. First thing, I think there's a broad agreement that the best option would be a negotiated peace. And we're trying that, and we should continue to support that. The real strategic question that, two or two questions, I think that the Biden administration has to deal with are, one, how do you support such a peace agreement or such a peace process? And two, what do you do? How do you posture yourself if you can't have that? Because it's not at all clear that such a peace process will work. I think the two come together in a very unsatisfactory way in a sort of long-term maintenance policy. And people won't like that. They want a clear end. They want a clear exit route. I understand that. 
but I think you have a choice between helping failure or giving yourself a chance at a long-term success. So on the one hand, the way you advance the peace process paradoxically is to support the war because the Taliban will only make peace if they don't think they have a choice of military victory. And if we're really in a hurry to run and go, all we're doing is saying to them that they have no reason to make concessions. The second thing is that we can sustain Afghanistan now at what amounts to a low cost compared to the days of big war. We are losing a few people in Afghanistan, less than 20 a year, which is serious. It's loss of life, but it's fewer than we lose in non-combat training incidents. It costs us about one to one and a half percent of the defense budget. This is real money, but these are long-term sustainable costs. And frankly, unless you have a way of producing peace like a rabbit out of a hat, which we don't, then you need to understand that it is a steady-as-you-go kind of policy where you look at what is the lowest number of troops and the lowest cost that has long-term sustainability that creates a situation that everybody else has to acknowledge and deal with instead of what you have now, which is a constant return to policy re-examination, troops that are pulled out with no strategic rationale, nobody in the world knowing what the hell you're going to do next, uh, and a complete sense of insecurity. So what happens if that doesn't work for whatever reason? We can't convince the American people uh, that that strategy makes sense to them and they continue to want to bring troops home. What happens if we leave and there is this instability you talk about? In what way does that, does that we're, going to, we're kind of going backwards here a little bit, but, but paint me a picture for what Afghanistan looks like if, if we don't get this right. If we don't get this right, we leave. NATO leaves because NATO can't stay without us. There are lots of people in Afghanistan, particularly the ethnic minority, some of which are very large, which have experienced the terror and horror of living under the Taliban and are prepared to continue fighting to prevent that, whether or not the Afghan army holds together. So if we leave, particularly if we pull our money out, the Afghan army is likely to fragment because they can't afford it. But lots of pieces of that army will continue in a war. That is where you move from an insurgency against a government to something that I would call a civil war. A civil war will then pull in outside powers because they all have things to protect. Iran, Russia, China, they will all find that the way to protect their borders and some from people they don't want, like the Islamic State, is to intervene and support groups in Afghanistan. That gives you a rolling civil war that will continue for an indefinite period of time. And that leaves lots of room for al-Qaeda to broaden its presence, for the Islamic State, ISIS, which is there to broaden its presence, and for, first of all, physical strategic threats to the United States to grow because they are looking for vengeance. And secondly, it, in a much harder, I think very important way, but harder to characterize, you are going to have a sense that the 
Islamic warriors have defeated the second superpower. This is proof that God is really on their side and that much more confidence to go on for the next 50 years of war with both the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. Mr. Ambassador, you've been great with your time. I want to ask you three more questions. We have about three minutes left. The first one is, our objectives in Afghanistan started pretty narrow, and then they broadened. With 2020 hindsight, was that the right thing to do, do you think, or not? I think they got too broad, but it is a lot easier to make that criticism than it is to go backward and say, what were your real choices? Uh, I suppose we could have just said, okay, we kicked the Taliban up, out now, or let it go back to civil war, we're out of here. But realistically, I think you get into a position, okay, you busted it, you got to put something in place, therefore you have a political negotiation. And once you say you want to keep the Taliban down, uh, you know, then you need an army. And then for an army, you need a state. And uh, for a state, you know, you need a budget and an economy. And so these things drive you into state building. Um, hmm. I don't think we recognize the, the logic of this. You tend to do these things a step right. at a time. But it's very, you know, there, there's a tale for the future there that it's really hard to have a limited goal once you overthrow a country and take over. Uh, but in retrospect, sure, we got too broad in the, probably in the democracy uh, and, and maybe too far, too far drawn in. But in any event, I think in some ways, although I think our bigger problem has not been the broadening of goals, but the constant shifting of goals. Mm -hmm. And we don't have time for it now, but, you know, by my count, I see really two major policies in the Bush administration, five in the Obama administration, at least two blending into kind of an incoherent third one in the Trump administration. So on average, we can't go more than about two years without wanting to change our mind and go someplace else. And deal with really hard situations in the world where you have to bring a lot of other people on board and have a consistent direction, you really are going to screw it up if you insist on changing your mind every couple of years. And last question, of all the things that you know about Afghanistan, Mr. Ambassador, if you could tell Joe Biden only one, what would it be? What would you want him to take away from a conversation with you? Well, I wish I had the golden answer there. I guess I would like to tell him first that you can lose this, but you don't have to. You can sustain a presence. I know you'll hate it because it's kind of a muddle through policy, but you can actually make that work. You don't have any major political pressure to get out. And your choices between that messy, uh, undesirable world and just losing. And that's, that's a choice that you will probably fight and look every which way to see, isn't there a better solution? Isn't there a plan B that gives me what I want? And I think the answer is no, you haven't got a plan B. Those are your choices. And it would be better not to lose. Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to mention one more time those podcasts from your academy, that'd be great. Oh, thank you. One is called The General and the Ambassador. 
uh, and it goes from Petraeus and Crocker right up to uh, things dealing with date to things today. The other one is called American Diplomat. If you really want a full-scale understanding of what diplomats really do and what the life is like, I commend that one, and I thank you for giving me a moment of commercial interruption. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a fantastic discussion. It thank you. Great pleasure. I hope I wasn't too wordy, and I really thank you for having me on. That was Ambassador Ron Newman. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.